There is a famous story of John Gielgud in the West End and a young actor jumped like two acts. Yeah. Right. But John Gielgud, he put his hands up and he went to the front of the stage and said, but more of that later and now back to where we were. <laughs> Welcome to the Crescent Theatre's Amateur of Life and Death podcast. One fact of life about amateur theatre, the subject of this podcast, is that everybody involved has to juggle the demands of their role in amateur theatre with their real lives, be that work, family or just drinking in the pub. This means we have to be flexible, understanding, resilient and ready to change hats at a moment's notice. As we all know, the show must go on. And so today, I'm joined by Rod. Rod was to be our guest, but he's had a battlefield promotion and is now guest and co-host of episode three, as Luke sadly can't make it. Right, okay, so here it goes. On today's episode, we're talking about The Revlon Girl, a play by Neil Anthony Docking, currently in rehearsal here at the Crescent Theatre. Laura and Michael will be getting their geek on and introducing the setting of the Revlon Girl and the style of theatre it sits within. John, our backstage pass holder and my co-host today, will be taking a dive into the props department. Ah, yep. And of course, Rod, today it all starts with you, as you've very kindly agreed to be our guest. Rod, I think it's fair to say that you've shaped your life around drama performance and the arts. You currently run your own successful production business and your journey to this point is full of impressive roles. I'm sure you'll tell us more about them as we talk more, but to give our listeners a taste, you have been a theatre director, a composer of music for theatre, including a well, it says here dreadful, but I'm sure it wasn't, including a dreadful musical with Alan Bleasdale, a TV producer and director for The Beeb, ITV, Channel 4 and more, head of network television and radio at BBC Birmingham for seven years, chair of the board of the Variety Club Children's Charity, visiting professor in TV studies at UCE, which is now Birmingham City University, chair of the West Midlands Arts and Screen West Midlands, CEO for four years of Fair Train, a charity increasing the availability and raising the quality of work experience, especially for disadvantaged young people. Rod, thank you for joining us. It's, it's a pleasure. It's great to have you here. Tell us about your first love. It's always been there. I, I, right from my earliest days, I had five or six years when I was a child, when I was desperately, desperately keen to become a professional airline pilot. Um, but the eyesight was put the end to that. So I went back to my passion for theatricality. Um, and I have no idea really where it came from. The only clue is possibly my maternal grandfather, whom I never met. But he was apparently always going to the latest shows right. in the West End. And he was apparently a very accomplished pianist who could come back having seen a new musical for the first time and play the tunes. Wow. It didn't trans transmit at all to my parents. And I, I often thought I have absolutely no connection between my interest in the creative 
activities and my parents. But in every stage of school, I was involved in productions and outside school in things like youth clubs and church pantomimes and all the rest of it. So it was there all the time. I moved from London to University at Bristol, and then that was it. I never, I never went back home. Oh, wow. um, I went from Bristol to Sheffield, uh, which was my first job at the Crucible, um, and then, uh, actually, no, not as nomadic as some people have. I then went for three years to Contact Theatre in Manchester, and then went up to the BBC. Uh, that's where I went to television, uh, and that was in Scotland, mm. six years in Scotland, and then back down to the Midlands. And that was because when I left the BBC. Uh, after six years up in Scotland, we had two tiny kids and um, I realised that actually for my wife to be that far apart from her parents who had moved to the Midlands and her sister who were in the Midlands, it, it was difficult for her because I was going to be away a lot of the time. And in fact, the first job I did as a freelance was eight weeks in Dubai. And I must say, in every way, living in the Midlands has been really, really good to us. And, and Rod, what's been the love of your theatrical life? The key moments, probably, was A, the decision to go to Bristol, and then as a result of coming out of, uh, as a result of going to Bristol, I then worked on a summer school, uh, which was in London Parks, and that caught the attention of Sam Wanamaker when he was setting up the Bankside Globe, and I did a couple of things that came into his arena, and he asked me if I would like to work for him as an assistant for six and weeks. What was the Bankside Globe? It's now become the Globe Playhouse in London. Oh, right. And right. it was 1972, no, 1973. But the current building was built in the 90s, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, this was a tent. Right. right? Sam Wanamaker <laughs> had all his life, an, no, Sam Wanamaker was a globally famous director and actor. And he had an abs American absolute passion for Shakespeare, and he wanted to recreate the, the Globe Playhouse. And in 1973, a massive tent went up on the site of what is now the Globe Playhouse, oh, built I didn't in the 90s. Yeah. To it. I, I got the most amazing experiences of working alongside this internationally famous guy. But there was a moment, it happened several times, but the first time it happened, I thought, yeah, this is really what I want to be involved in, was Sam standing halfway up the audience bank, me on his shoulders, with a broom pushing the water off the tent so that the performance of Hamlet could go ahead without... The show must go on. And, and, and I thought, this guy's an icon. Mm -hmm. He's a legend. Yeah. And here he is, happy to do anything to get the show on. Um, and I learned so much from him, mostly that he got absolutely everything he always wanted out of anybody, but with immense charm. Excellent. And Rod, can you tell us about the one that got away? Um, I was at Granada and later one afternoon, I'd had a conversation with the, the then head of everything um, about whether I would take on a three project package the next year, which was to continue to produce Krypton Factor to launch a, a junior version of Krypton Factor called Young Krypton and a children's drama series. Uh, at that moment, a blank sheet, but it turned out to be Children's Ward, which became The Ward. So just, just for our, our listeners, Krypton Factor was a... Uh, it, it was, a, it was an ITV's leading entertainment programme, which was an all-round challenge. It was quiz, assault course, yeah. mental agility, yeah. landing... Um, aircraft in simulators. And I think that the actual words, the Krypton factor, have kind of been woven into the English yeah, yeah, language yeah. now. It's sort it, of folklore. It was, it? We, we were getting 15 million viewers. I mean, wow. it was massive. So I'd agreed to do that. 
in a conversation uh, with the head of entertainment and drama, whom I knew well, and I'd been working there for quite a long time as a freelance, wasn't staff. And I went back to my office, uh, and this is absolutely amazing timing. That evening, I got a phone call from Denise Donahue, who, who was then running Hat Trick, saying, we've just had agreement from Channel 4 to do the, uh, a pilot of a television show based on improvisation. And uh, we would love you to direct the pilot with the understanding that if it's commissioned, you would then go on to direct the first series. That became Whose Line Is It Anyway, which was a, a massive hit. Yeah. And it was all about improvisation, which I, 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 I really find fascinating mm -hmm. and fun as a tool. Um, it was theatre being put onto telly. Yeah. It was yeah. everything that you could possibly hope for. And I said to her, well, I, I actually can't do it. And she said, why not? I said, because I've just agreed to do this three-package year next year. And she said, well, you've signed a contract. I said, that's not the point. I have just agreed to do it. Mm -hmm. And I can't turn around and now say to the guy I've been speaking to, sorry, I've changed my mind. I've had a better offer. Because so you'd it agreed to do children's? Right? I'd agreed to do three things, Crypton, Young Crypton and Children's War, all in right. the year. Okay. So well, whose line is it anyway? You had to I had to say no, back. sorry. I'd say, sorry, I can't do it. And that got away forever. And I think I would have loved it. The fourth of our standard questions for you. Tell us about a time when you died on stage. Um, I got offered the role of Hamlet. And it was, uh, it was an extraordinary experience. Thelma Holt, who was a huge name then and probably started the London Fringe, was producing it. Michael Attenborough from the dynasty was directing it. This was, I say, eight times a week for six weeks. We used to do Q&As after a couple of performances um, of Hamlet and Michael Attenborough used to come up for at least one of those. And there's one occasion where some woman said, I was really interested that you chose to cut that section from whatever scene it was. Um, when Hamlet normally talks about X and didn't. And uh, I'm just wondering why you did that cut, she asked Michael. And Michael said, I think that's one for Rod. Um, <laughs> and I said, um, I, mm, I cut, I forgot my lines, I, I just jumped. And she said, no, 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 but what I want to know is why you did it. I said, no, because it happens. It happens. <laughs> it yeah. just happens. Yeah. And, and that's live theatre. You think, so, especially a part like Hamlet, when you've got so many lines and it's, it's so dense, it would be so easy to, to skip. And then once you've skipped and you realise you've skipped as an actor, the big question you have to think while you're still delivering your lines, do I attempt to go back? I know. And, and where the hell am I? And yeah. there is a famous story of John Gielgud in the West End, and I think it was a Shakespeare piece, and a young actor jumped like two acts. Yeah, right. in which case you've got to come back. So, but John Gilgood, he put his hands up, and he went to the front of the stage and said, but more of that later, and now back to where we were. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, I think you were about to say... <laughs> and to be honest, that was probably the best way to do it. And the it? audience loved it. Yeah, Once yeah. the audience share a story, once they share your secret, and they know something's gone wrong and you're putting it right, they become p even more part of the action. So I think they really love it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that was just, you needed to have, I mean, he, he was then, you know, along with Olivier, was the leading light of British theatre. So he had the gravitas to, to do To be that. able to do yeah. it, yeah. Because yeah. I've, I've, I've been in shows where you skip on a bit or somebody else skips on a bit and if you've missed an important plot point, or as you say, if you've skipped on a lot, you've got to come back. And so you have to try and find a way to come back. And then sometimes you've got to skip forwards again. And it can be, and if you do that and the audience don't notice, fine. But if the audience realise and you start to lose the audience, then the performance can really suffer. So it's, it's a tough one. And I think there's, 
it's also how good a cast are you? Mm. Because, you know, your fellow actors should see the terror in your eyes yeah. and think, I yeah. know what's happened here. Because the colour drains. Yeah, and they'll yeah. think, okay, I can help here. I, yeah. can, I can send this on the way. A lot of this podcast for episode three, we're looking at the Revlon girl, uh, which is the play by uh, Neil Docking. So um, there's a couple of things about the play I'd like to cover with you. The, the play is an ensemble piece. That is to say there's no lead role. All actors have equal stage time. It's also an all-female cast. And here at the Crescent, it's also a female director and female props. The play is largely about women dealing with disaster and bereavement in a 1960s mining town. The world of the play is steeped in gender roles we might now see as old-fashioned, men going to work, the women staying home. And you've been in the game, as we might call it, long enough to see changes in the way gender is employed in drama and, and the way opportunity is distributed. Uh, what changes have you seen over your career? I think the big... There's a difference between diversity and gender. Mm. Okay. If we're talking about gender, the biggest difference... I think I've seen is off stage or off screen, where I went into a very male dominated world. Uh, the finest director I've ever worked for, my artistic director at Contact, uh, was Caroline Smith. Unusual. Mm -hmm. It was very unusual for those in those days for actually female directors was a bit unusual. For a female artistic director running a company was very unusual. Wow. Um, so writers, all creatives, all technical people, designers, writers, um, directors, it was much more male-dominated. And that's where I've seen, I think, the biggest change, and on off-screen as well, where we now have um, directors, producers, executive producers, commissioners, people running channels, people running networks, people running high-level high independents are women. And that would not have been the case... For example, when the independent sector started, which was in the 1980s, that wouldn't have been the case. Um, so that really, in terms of gender, uh, has, I think, been the biggest difference. What I think has happened, though, is if you encourage and give, give opportunities to uh, female directors, producers and writers, then there is a likelihood they will write better roles and more roles for women, yeah. but not necessarily for older women. Talk mm. to older professional actresses and they still have an issue about the fact that there, there seems to be much more uh, available for men mm. to keep going yes. into their later years yes. than there is for women. So that's still to be addressed. But I think it's almost holistic if you actually support and encourage off-stage creatives amongst women, then they will almost certainly, and have done so, mm -hmm. will start creating many more roles. The Revlon Girl is a play where the characters are fictional, but the setting is real, a kind of docu-theatre. Theatre is capable of great fantasy and spellbinding illusion, but equally, as we see in The Revlon Girl, there is also a rich seam of theatre that deals much more closely with factual truth, real-life events and people. One contemporary example of this that I've seen on billboards just this week is a play called Value Engineering, scenes from the Grenfell Inquiry, based on real testimony, real words spoken by real people about the reasons for that 
terrible fire in a high-rise in London. This kind of theatre, based on actual words spoken by real people, is called verbatim theatre. Is that right? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a progression from docu-theatre. Um, documentary theatre. Um, and the clue is in the word. It's verbatim. It's exactly what people said. Uh, so the, I think if we take the current situation and, and, and think about social media, and what I think underplays the problem is the term fake news. I mean, fake news is much more serious mm. than that rather light term implies. It's very hard to know what to believe. Uh, on, on everything we're fed uh, on social media, and it's very, very powerful indeed. So it's getting more and more difficult for people to know what is true in certain circumstances which are really, really important uh, and, and affect people's lives. Now, verbatim theatre leaves no room for doubt because it is, it is pretty much exactly what people said. I say pretty much because some verbatim practitioners will add little bits and will, will to, to help the construct, will not necessarily be 100% verbatim, but the majority are. So this is exactly what people say. And the skill then is to construct it. And then in my first job at, at The Crucible, I worked a lot with an actor called Robin Soans, um, who started talking about his interest in verbatim theatre and has become one of Britain's most successful verbatim writers. Right. Um, talking to terrorists was, was just a thinly veiled story about Mo Molum. Um, Robin, you know, who I spent a lot of time... And, and Mo uh, with, Molum, she helped broker the Good Friday yeah. peace agreement in Northern Ireland. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then I went to Contact Theatre and we did a thing called A Day in the Life of Manchester. And that was the first time I really, really experienced full verbatim theatre. The whole company went out for 24 hours with tape recorders into every section of Manchester society from, from the night shelter to the bishop um, and the Lord Mayor. And then we put all those verbatim pieces with no additional stuff whatsoever into a piece to which we did add music about 24 hours in the life of Manchester. And then you think, this is really, really powerful because mm. I've met that person who this actor is now portraying. I've met them. I heard them say this. And so if you were staging one of those plays, how does it differ in approach to how you would, what you would say to your actors and, and how you might um, construct the stage and stuff like that? Um, I don't know who it is, and there's a quote I'm about to misquote, but somebody said, you know, um, when verbatim theatre forgets that it's theatre, it's doomed. Um, it's talking heads. Mm. It's basically talking heads. And the big challenge is how do you give it life? How do you engage an audience? How do you give it light and shade, ups and downs, which hopefully the constructor has done for you, or the playwright. There's a, there's a, a visceral authenticity to it, and, and, you know, great plays are great plays, but they're constructs. Yeah, and and verbatim theatre and some docu theatre, they're not constructs in the same way, and that makes them powerful. And you've got to be fair. You've got to be honest. You've got to be fair. You cannot. You, you can do whatever you like with a fictional character, whatever you like, um, but you cannot with a real character turn them into the person they weren't. Um, thanks for that, Rod. We're going to move on now to talk about directing before we finish. Um, there are a lot of directors in amateur theatre who maybe are just starting out or who would otherwise be interested in benefiting from your experience. 
What were the mistakes you made or the lessons you learned early on in your career or, or, or at any point in your career that you wouldn't mind passing on so our listeners, our aspirant directors in whatever setting can learn from them? Um, I'll, I'll deal with uh, a mistake or an error uh, first and then I'll do a series of tips if that's, that's helpful. Um, the error is, uh, and, and actually, John, I'm going to remind you of a moment of something you said to me in oh a rehearsal. God. Yes, um, <laughs> the error you can make, the mistake you can make, is it's very easy to confuse anybody. And if, as a director, you're trying to take a production in a slightly different direction or change what you've been working on up till now, because somebody maybe has come up with an idea that's a really good idea, you think I need to adapt this. You need to work out who can change quickly, who can't change quickly how you help people through that change and them understanding it. And you said to me at one moment in For Services Rendered, in which I think I, you, you gave a terrific performance, but in one rehearsal you said, God, I'm really confused now. And I thought, right, I shouldn't have let that happen. Um, you know, because we were trying things this way, that way, this way, this way, which, which way, which way we're working best. And I think I got you to a point where you didn't know what the hell I was talking about. Um, and, and I suppose, so if I go through a series of tips, that's really important. This is a team effort. Uh, you're a director, not a dictator. And the best analogy I was given was when I was actually applying for an Arts Council bursary as a, as a trainee director. And somebody said, you know, it was, it was a famous opera producer, I can't remember his name, who was on the panel, who said, how would you define the role of a director? And I, I'd never really thought about it. Mm. And there was this horrible silence. And he said, well, let me tell you how I see it, which is if you can imagine a 10-lane American freeway, on a busy commuting morning, and it's got toll booths, and only two toll booths are working. Somebody has to get all that traffic through those two toll booths, and they're all gonna have different intentions, different speeds, different cars, different personalities. You've gotta get them all going through that one direction. That's what I think a director does. Mm -hmm. And I'd never forgotten that. Yeah. And you think, so I would say, you know, start out with a really clear idea of what you want to do with a show. Know the play better than anybody else you need to be able to explain why every single word is there yeah. so when an actor says i don't understand what this means yeah. you think well if you think about yeah, act yeah. three there's a reference there you need to know it better than anybody else you need to research around it really really thoroughly because you will never get that time of your life back so if you're going to devote time to it devote to it fully because then you really know the play but listen to your team they need to own the show as well it becomes their show uh, once it opens. So they need to be on board. And if you've got a particular route you're going down and uh, somebody says, do you think it might be better if we perhaps brought this into it? Listen. Yeah. Give it a try. Yeah. It might be better. It's not weak. Don't to change. be inflexible. No. And it's not weak to change your mind. Mm. And actually, I think actors warm to you when you say, can I tell you, I think I've got the last two days completely wrong. And um, what I actually think we should try is, and they warm to that because it's honest. Uh, the joy is that if you, if you have a company of actors of, you know, six, eight, ten, you know, they will all be different personalities. And you've got to think, does this person need a hug? Does this person need a bit of a slap? Uh, does this yeah. person How need... How can a... I get the yeah. best out yeah. of them? Um, and, and they will all be insecure. Yeah. At the end of the day, to go on and speak somebody else's words and pretend to be somebody else in front of other people is one of the hardest jobs. And so, you know, you can, you can accept insecurity. And I think the role of the director is to give them as much confidence as possible so that they can do that. Be patient. 
Um, it will take some people a long time to fit into a role and you can go home at night and crack open another bottle of wine and think, oh my God, he's, not, he's just not getting this. He's mm. just not getting in. It's, it's not working. And, and then there'll come a moment the next day or the day after you think, oh my God, he's got it. Yeah, and, boom, and, it just and it's, fires and it's lovely. Getting the best performance possible out of each actor. And like you said, every act is different. That's a skill. Yeah, and it's nice when you see it. It's nice when you see people do things much better than they thought they could or you thought they could. Uh, and Rod, um, thank you so much no, for coming been, in. It's been a huge. Um, I was going to say it's been a huge pleasure. But didn't you want to see Trish? Because yeah. you know, I think she's just heading off down the oh. props. Oh, thanks, Rod. See you later, uh, Trish. Trish. Great. So that's um, John has dashed off. So I guess in the meantime, here's Laura and Michael. Thanks, Rod. At the end of October, the Crescent Theatre Birmingham is proud to present Neil Docking's play, The Revlon Girl. This production of the play commemorates the 55th anniversary of the Aberfan disaster. The play is set eight months after the disaster, in June 1967, in the Welsh village of Aberfan itself. The Aberfan disaster was a devastating national tragedy in 1966 that's still deeply felt in Wales today. And it was the basis for an episode of Netflix's series, The Crown, in 2019. Younger listeners or anyone joining us from overseas might be less familiar with the story. The village of Aberfan, near Merthyr Tydfil, had grown up almost entirely around the coal mines started there a hundred years before. On Friday the 21st of October 1966, at about quarter past nine in the morning, one of the mining waste tips on a hill above the village subsided after days of heavy rain. About 150,000 tonnes of debris rushed down the hill at high speed in a slurry 39 feet deep, destroying or flooding homes in the village and engulfing the junior school and parts of the senior school in feet of thick mud and rubble. Although miners and rescue teams managed to free some survivors that morning, the tip collapse injured many and ultimately killed 144 people in the village, 116 of them children. In the days immediately following the calamity, after the first news reports, Aberfan was inundated with volunteers who were sometimes a help, but often a hindrance or even a danger, and the village also had to deal with media attention that was often less than sensitive while they continued to search for survivors. As the slurry had solidified, it took the people of Aberfan a week to recover every victim. On the 27th of October, there was a mass funeral for over 80 people, nearly all of them children. Still, support also poured in. On the day of the disaster, the mayor of Merthyr Tydfil set up the Aberfan Disaster Memorial Fund. By the time the relief fund closed for donations three months later, nearly 90,000 people around the world had donated over £1.6 million, about £30 million in today's money. Queen Elizabeth also visited the village on the 28th of October to pay her respects with the Duke of Edinburgh, and it was one of the few occasions she has been seen to shed tears in public. Within a few days of the disaster, a tribunal was also set up to hold an inquiry into the cause of the disaster. The tribunal lasted nearly six months. It published its report in August 1967 and concluded that the disaster could and should have been prevented, blaming the disaster on the National Coal Board, citing ignorance, ineptitude and a failure in communications. It named nine senior coal board staff with varying degrees of responsibility, although nobody ever lost their job or was prosecuted for the catastrophe. Did the National Coal Board even have to pay any compensation? Yes. The tribunal also found that the National Coal Board was legally liable to pay for personal injuries and damage to property. 
they did pay about £160,000 in compensation in the end. They eventually paid £500 for each person who had been killed, about 9000 today, although they did originally offer just 50 Did the area at least become safer afterwards? Not straight away. Because of the disaster, Parliament did pass the Mines and Quarries Tips Act three years later in 1969. But first, there were seven spoil tips on the hills above Aberfan. Number seven was the one that had collapsed. But the people of Aberfan still had to fight to make the area safe, as it was possible for the tragedy to repeat itself if the other tips weren't removed. The coal board refused to pay to remove the remaining coal tips around Aberfan, and in the end, £150,000 was taken from the Aberfan Disaster Memorial Fund to help to pay to remove the tips. The British government did eventually pay back the 150000 in 1997, 30 years after it was taken, though without accounting for inflation. Finally, 10 years later, the Welsh government donated the 2007 equivalent to Aberfan Charities as compensation. Where does the play The Revlon Girl fit into this timeline? The play takes place in a function room of a hotel in the village in June 1967, so some months after the disaster, but it's still very recent to everyone in the play. It's a period of uncertainty. The inquiry has finished, but the report hasn't been published yet, and the survivors don't know what cause or blame it'll find. Thousands of people have donated to the memorial fund, but there's still no agreement yet on how to spend it or divide it up. The persistent rain reminds people of the continuing threat of the other spoil tips still looming over the village. They don't know yet if or when they'll be removed. Aberfan's residents are still coping with their own trauma from the disaster. In the play, it's still early days, so couples, bereaved parents, remaining siblings, friends and colleagues are all trying to figure out how to repair and continue their lives and relationships with each other. And everyone in the play is moving forward with their grief in different ways. Is it based on these real events and people? The play is based around the real events and place, but the characters are fictional, though they probably represent many real people from the time, based on the stories the writer found in the National Archives and beyond. The main characters, four Welsh women in the small mining village, all grieving mothers, all know each other and their families. They all have different experiences and coping mechanisms, and the ongoing story of the disaster and the historical and emotional aftermath unfolds during a slightly awkward attempt at a normal evening with their English visitor from outside the village, the Revlon girl. What was the inspiration for the story and to make a play out of it? Where does Revlon fit into the story? The play's author, Neil Docking, was born in South Wales in the 1970s, so when he was growing up, the disaster was something everyone still knew about and felt deeply. The towns and villages in the valleys had been accustomed to losing workers in the mines and factories, but the huge civilian tragedy at Aberfan had left a massive impression. Docking often thought there was a story to be told from the disaster, although he wanted to make sure it could be a universal story, a play that could still speak to anyone, no matter what country they were in or how old they were. One day, during his research on Aberfan, he found a tiny reference in an academic book by Joan Miller. It mentioned a group of women who met up weekly, originally to protest, but eventually as a support group, to talk, laugh and cry together without feeling guilty about it. One week they got together and noticed that they had let themselves go a bit and arranged for a lady from the cosmetics company Revlon to come and give them beauty tips, although they arranged this in secret so that everyone else in the village wouldn't think they were being frivolous in the midst of the tragedy. This was the light bulb moment he was waiting for. It was. Here was an intimate moment in an enormous story, just a group of characters trying to be normal in a not-normal situation, and what unfolds from that for them and for the audience. 
The play explores questions about loss, blame, moving on, and making sure history doesn't repeat itself. And the normal part is the makeup evening, which doesn't always go to plan. Yes, a lot of the humour of the play comes from their interactions with the well-meaning visitor, their young Revlon lady, and her on-brand spiel. The adverts are taken from real Revlon adverts from the period, and some of them can sound a bit over the top today, very of their time. But without spoiling the play, the makeup moments lead to some heartwarming scenes too, as audiences will get to enjoy. To find out what lies in the amateur theatre's props trolley, with a 1960s array of makeup to recreate, our backstage pass holder John O'Neill has been speaking to Trish Henley and Alistair Hurst from the Crescent's production team on the Revlon Girl. I've just dashed downstairs and now I'm stood outside of the props archive. Uh, I'm Trish and I am gathering props, um, some of which are kept in this room and um, I also try and mend props or alter props so that they suit the show better. Um, I'm Alistair, I am the production assistant for The Revlon Girl, which uh, is a role that means I do a lot of things everywhere, trying to help everyone out basically, and today I'm helping Trish out. And the props room, where we are now, is a treasure trove. Uh, an Aladdin's cave of a room, it's a windowless, buried, lost archive. Trish, as you are more familiar than most with the universe of objects packed into these four walls, could you pick out a few props to give our listeners a taste of the riches that surround us. Tell us where we're going, Trish, guide we're us through. We're going into the shoe cupboard, shoe store, and at the end of the shoes, there are some very big cupboards, and they hold, in the cupboards, various items. So you've got kitchen, and above, there's also other kitchen items. Yeah, so I can see sort of tin washing equipment from the Victorian era, some... Um, tins that are made up to look like tins from, I'd say, the 1930s, maybe. Then we've got crockery, two large cupboards full of crockery. And above that, you've got bunches of flowers of assorted varieties. And we ought to just say they're plastic flowers so they don't go off. <laughs> and glassware and food in one cupboard. Um, and above that are lamps. Lanterns, lanterns. for candles and cycle lamps, and then glassware, tankards, and we have whips. Oh, look at that. <laughs> so, wow, we've just opened a cupboard which is full of leather whips, which I didn't necessarily expect to open a cupboard and see that this evening. We'll leave those in there, shall we? Right. Um, Here we go. Again, we've got crockery of different periods. They were used in Alice in Wonderland um, for the Mad Hatter's Tea Party. Um, and then uh, I also used some for the play This Happy Breed, which is set between the two world wars. And every time anything happened on stage, they needed cups of tea, lots of cups of tea. So we had to have a, a pot always with warm tea um, off stage. And then the cups were carried on with tea. When they were finished with, they were brought out, then they had to be washed for the next time. So we had to have two lots of cups going, one, one being washed and one full of cups of tea. And because it was in the studio, which is quite small, and the door to the, between 
where the props were and the audience were had to be kept open. We had to be extremely quiet. And that's very difficult when you're dealing, dealing with lots crockery. of crockery. <laughs> and that brings us to you, Alice. Yeah, we've got a, a prop that's um, very heavily involved in the play. Um, so just to give a bit of a context. And which play is that, Alice? The Revlon Girl. Oh, the Revlon Girl, which, of course, the Crescent Theatre are currently in rehearsals yes. with. And it opens on October the 23rd. Well remembered. <laughs> um, so, yeah, for a bit of context, um, The Revlon Girl is a play which is set eight months after the Aberfan disaster of 1966, um, which some people may know or may even remember, um, when a Welsh mining town suffered a huge landslide from tips from the mine that covered the village and mostly covered the primary school. There were 144 people killed, 116 of them were children mm. and the Revlon girl is um, set eight months after and it's about a group of bereaved mothers who have formed a sort of support group to try and help them with their grief of losing their children and in the particular night that the Revlon girl takes place one of the group has decided to get in a representative from Revlon the makeup company to try and help them to feel more themselves again. Right, yeah. And from there, it sort of goes out, it plays out basically in real time of that evening, and it's really about them as a group learning to cope with the new situation they found themselves in, rebuilding some of the relationships between the women in the room, um, and, yeah, sort of maybe finding themselves again after this huge period and, of And there's a lovely warm interplay between the characters. I have read a little bit of, yeah. of the play. So it, it's it's a tough subject matter, yeah. but the way the, it's dealt with in the plays is actually quite light in places. It, yeah, it's really quite funny. Uplifting. Yeah. It's also yeah. really funny. There's a lot of yeah. comedy in it. So which, which prop have you chosen for? So, um, well, in this case, we have a prop that's also an active metaphor. Right. Which is, maybe not this one, but one of these. Right. So this is a big metal bucket. We're looking at a zinc bucket. And uh, it's it's a well-worn zinc bucket stained with paint. And we, we don't know that that will definitely be the one in the Revlon Girl. But what do you think, Probably Trish? I think it will be. It will be, yeah. It is now. So this, this bucket has a starring role. This bucket's on stage more than some of the actresses in the play. And... Uh, when the play starts, which takes place in uh, the room above a pub, where there is a skylight, this skylight is leaking. Uh, the first character enters, Sean, who is coincidentally played by my wife, Charlotte, um, comes in, notices this skylight leaking, and then fetches the bucket. Um, and the reason I picked the bucket is because this is a, a metaphor for the Aberfan disaster itself, and also for the play as a whole. Throughout the play, this leak happens, it eventually gets captured by the bucket, but this is relevant because one of the things that led to the disaster in Abbevan was extremely heavy rain. Right. There was extremely heavy rain and also a stream underneath these tips. Both of these things combined caused these solid masses of, of rock that have been dug out of the mine to liquefy and slide down the mountainside. Right. So this thing, this constant drip coming in the room that is relentless throughout the play, is reminding the mothers of the rain and the dripping and the water that caused the slide on that day. Yeah. And it's also this sort of metaphor for something that they can't get away from. Something. Trish, this is a, a question for you. How did you get started in props? 
And is, is this your first play where you've been totally in charge of props? I think it's the second. Right. Um, but the first one was 39 steps and there weren't many props on there, so right. that wasn't an issue. Yeah. This is quite a different situation. And, and what is it that brings you back? That's a very good question. <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually do find it very interesting what being involved and seeing a play develop through all the different rehearsals it, it's really quite fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. And is it easy to find the props? Is it, or, or can it be quite stressful? Um, I think it very much depends on the props, and it depends on how much you know about the time, the period that the play is set in. And um, because of my age, I ought to know a lot more about Revlon than I do, because at the time, I do remember the Aberfan disaster. But I wasn't particularly into makeup, so I don't remember much about Revlon. Um, so I'm having to learn learn it from more or less from scratch, really. And in terms of, so you 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 delve around, you find the, the props if you can, you get them all together, and then are you involved actually in the performance, the performances themselves? Um, there can be, depending on the play, there can be quite a lot of backstage activity. And have you had actors take them into the dressing room and forget they've got them in their pocket? Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I say that from experience. I was going to say, one of my favourite things from being backstage in the show is just the look of a fully laid out props table where everything's been like taped off to have mm. its own perfectly formed little section for each of the props. There's something I find just like looking at the props table of, of it all being laid out so perfectly and knowing exactly where you've got to put it back. That's like yeah, really satisfying. Satisfying, yeah. yeah. And you're fine as long as all those little boxes have got something in them. It's when you go to get your prop and it's not there <laughs> and you've got to make an entrance. And have you ever had an, an actor panicking, trying to find their prop? No, touch wood. Touch wood. No. All right. But at the end of every show, um, I'm... I make sure that all the spaces have got items in um, and then at the beginning of the show so I'll check it out at the end of the, the night and I check it in again at the before the show and if anything goes missing in between times then I look at the actor that the prop is used by and say what have you done with it yeah. and then that's their problem not mine. And there's, there's no understudies for props? There's no understudies per se, there's no understudies for anything. Wow. So, Alistair, a similar question for you, but not about props. You're the production assistant for Revlon Girl. Why is that a role you enjoy? And what have you been doing to support the Revlon Girl? Um, so, this is my second time being production assistant. Coincidentally, my first time was on the 39 Steps when Trish was doing her oh, first right. So, you're the dream team. Yeah, we're a team <laughs> without realising it, aren't we? Um, yes, yeah, so this is my second time um, being production assistant. Um, previously at the Crescent I've, I've just done acting mostly and what I've been really enjoying about Production Assistant is it being you're in a position where you're sort of sitting outside of all the creative processes but in a way that you do get to interact with them but even when you're sitting on the outside as an actor not doing your scene I think you're still slightly involved in what you're doing and I think even if you're directing you're still involved in what you're doing it's really interesting to have that sort of um, third person perspective yeah. on all of those decisions that are being made you can I think you can see the production forming from all the departments perhaps in a way that you can't when you are involved in as a specific department so you're, you're, you've got that sort of critical distance yeah 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 it's just it's really interesting having that critical distance as you say 
And then what I've been doing to support the Revlon girl is um, basically the production assistant is there, I mean, sort of first and foremost as assistant to the director is the most important thing in whatever capacity they will need. You'll always be at the production meetings, at the rehearsals, making any notes that needs doing. So especially with the Revlon girl, one of my main things has been sitting in the rehearsal rooms, noting down the blocking, which is where is everyone who's moving where, who's standing yeah. up, who's sitting in what chair at which point, because um, not a lot of it is laid out in the script, and it's very easy to go through the play, put some movements in, put some blocking, and then everyone forgets Forget them because yeah. they've been busy yeah. acting. Yeah. Um, and then and, I'm and the it, one going. It is absolutely key. I, I've been in rehearsal rooms where, you know, three weeks ago we had a particular scene, and by the time we finished rehearsal it was perfect. We knew exactly where everybody was going, <laughs> and there was lots of movement, and there's, you know, lots of people. You come back to do it three weeks later, nobody can remember a thing apart from the production, production assistant, assistant who, who's written it all down yeah. and no you're stood here you're there you're there and I, that's that's quite a skill in itself really yeah uh, that's something that I in a weird way that I wouldn't think I would enjoy quite as much as I do but like knowing where everyone is I'm also a real stickler for people being dead accurate on the script as mm, well yeah it's just an annoying habit that I've in had terms from, of their lines in terms of yeah. their lines yeah, yeah. I, if it was well, you know if it's uh, the line would is whatever didn't you know that and they say you know didn't you know that's like even things like that yeah. i'm just a real stickler for it and well it's a i, bit, it's I a think weird. it's right to be a pedant <laughs> yes. about those things because a playwright every full stop every comma you know they've put those there for a reason yeah for that character to create that mood so 100 percent. don't let the actors walk all over that <laughs> and then we're going to finish with a true or false quiz which is kind of based on the Revlon girl. So in the Revlon girl, there's lots of makeup that gets talked about. And one of the slogans that's that, that used to be used by Revlon in the 60s when this play is set was cherries in the snow. Who knows who you really are? Does he? Who knows the secret hopes that warm your heart? Who knows the dreams you dream? Who knows you sometimes long to sleep in pure silk sheets? I'd buy it from you, John. <laughs> <laughs> so, we have a list of six lipstick shades. Some are made up and some are real. And it's for you, one at a time, I'm going to come to you, uh, to guess whether it's made up. If it's made up, I want you to say tricks, if you think it's made up. And if you think it's a real shade from the 60s, I want you to say lips. So, we'll start with Alistair first. Pango peach. It's a full, ripe peach with a world of difference. Born to be worn in big, juicy slices. Tricks. Lips. <laughs> you got that one wrong. I'm going to keep score. Um, big, juicy slices that made me think that. This one's for you, Trish. Candy floss. A pink and luscious shade, so sweet. She wears the taste of a fairground treat. I'd say lips. Tricks. Okay. We've made that one up. That's zero okay. points for you as well, Trish. Right. Alistair. Berry bonbon. A strong, sweet red. Brilliant on lips and fingertips. Tricks. It's real. It's ah! lips. You've got zero. Again. Um, Trish, honey bee pink. Meet the honey bee girl. 
such a feminine female. Is it any wonder that most of life's honey seems to be gathered for her? Tricks. It's real. <laughs> Lips. Lips. You're still on level peggings. Um, Alistair. Burnished beetroot. A warm, earthy, beet gilded with the sheen of winter's first frost. A precious amethyst nestled in the ground. I thought no one's buying something called burnished beetroot, but then your, your poetry was so good. Oh, lips. Tricks. Oh. <laughs> now, Trish, there's no pressure, but if you get this one right, you've won. You ready? Jungle peach. A bright, sweet, pink, ripened peach. Bursting with blushness. Brimming with chic. Lips. Correct. Oh, wow. You're the winner. Wow. Well done, Trish. Thank you so much. Thank Thanks, you. John. Thank you very much, John. Amateur of Life and Death is a Crescent Theatre production. It's presented by Laura East, Michael McLernan, Rod Natkeel, and John O'Neill. Title music is by Brendan Stanley. The research is by Laura East and Liz Plumpton. And it's edited by Kevin Middleton. <laughs>